0: Welcome to the Human24 Live On Form podcast. This is a conversation with the people we have encountered and met across our lives. People who have and are still inspiring us with their journeys, an ongoing pursuit to fulfill their potential. Experts in their given fields, legacy builders and people who strive to perform at their very best every moment of every day. We dig into their hows, their whys, what fuels their purpose and what their ingrained daily habits are that ensure structure continues to defeat chaos. We hope you enjoy. Okay, so today we are joined by Dr. Kat, who has a PhD in human circadian physiology and behavior, an MSc in biosciences, founder and head of sleep health at Somnia, and one of the leading experts in the world of sleep therapy. Kat, how are you?
1: I'm good. I'm good. Looking forward to our, to our chat.
0: Yeah, yeah. I, I've, been, I've been looking forward to this one all week because it's <laughs> it, it's very rare that we get. A specialist in a field that we talk about an awful lot so so it's nice to get somebody who who has a, a, a ridiculous depth of knowledge on that subject and obviously circadian physiology and circadian biology is something we talk about an awful lot I'm sure there's certain things that we can refine a little bit more with respect to to what we're talking about and I'm hoping you can direct us in those uh those areas but uh, I mean, how did you get into this? This is, this is always a fascinating one because I, I, we talk to so many people who have these specialist areas, and there's always, how did you get to that point? So, so what made you want to study this particular topic?
1: So I can tell you it wasn't, it wasn't a clear plan. You know, so many people have a clear plan. Um, I, I didn't. Um, when, I, when I decided to study biology, I actually thought I'll focus on genetics but I soon realized that nah, that's not my cup of tea. And I was really interested in the zoology in the behavior that's much more. And um, as part of, you know, sort of the, the teaching there, there was sort of some teaching on chronobiology back at university. And when I did my master's project um, that had a chronobiological so that had a timing component in a such that I was studying free animal species in the wintertime and their you know behavior, their competition, and someone else had done that in the summer. So that's sort of the first time I really came into contact with the timing system, which is what chronobiology is about, it's looking at temporal patterns and rhythms. Um, and um, so I did that and then actually I went to South Africa um, to do a biological zoological project out there with meerkats And that was super fascinating, but that's really when I sort of became more interested in the sleep. And the reason being is that in the summertime, you know, when the sun comes up really, really early, the the Metcats, they get up really early, which means us, you know, all the research volunteers, we have to be there waiting for them at the borough, you know, by six o'clock or sometimes I think it was five o'clock even. And compared to the winter, you know, where, you know, that would be maybe seven or maybe 8 a.m. And I just noticed the difference in mood and the people I was working with. Now I'm a morning person, so for me, you know, getting up early in the morning is, is not really a problem and I'm really happy and, you know, chirpy and everything. But I noticed the difference in people's mood depending on when we had to get up. And that sort of really reminded me of my interest in in, in sleep. Um, and then I have to be honest, I. I Found this PhD um, that was sort of advertised by the University of um, Surrey and Guildford and applied. And, you know, I, I got the position. And then it's just everything fell into place. And I just arrived somewhere at a topic, as well as the research group, which I really enjoyed.
0: Amazing. So, so how many people did this? Was it, you know, you know, this was offered up as a as a topic, as a subject. It's certainly something I've never seen at. You know, certainly the university I studied at, it wasn't a topic. But, but was it? Was there a big intake on this? Was there a, a whole bunch of people on this?
1: No. So actually, the the project that I did, um, I looked at sort of sleep in older people and using a light therapy um, to improve sleep to stabilise circadian rhythms. That in itself was my, was. Part of a much bigger project. Um, It was a Marie Curie European funded project with different sort of universities um, across the whole of, of Europe. And they all sort of looked at sort of, yeah, sleep disruption, you know, influence of circadian rhythms on this from all different angles. Um, you know some people were working in rats others in cell cultures and um, some came from more sociology perspective so it was a real a real mix um, so while in Surrey it was actually only me and, and a postdoc um, there was immediately a group a, a network you know that I became a part of um, which which was amazing um, to you know you know just to, to, to learn so, so much from all these different fields and areas because we all sleep. We we all have an inner timing system, and that impacts on so many other aspects of our lives, and vice versa. Other aspects of our life impact on our sleep and on our timing system. It's really fascinating.
0: It, it, it's a it's a really interesting subject in that you know I've been in the health and wellness sector my entire life. You know, as as you know, as an adult certainly, and circadian biology has always been kind of talked about and always mentioned, and it's always had that kind of uh, almost a bit wishy-washy sort of voodoo about it. And it's, it's, a, it's a remarkable thing because it's, it's something which is, you know, it's, innate, it's something that there's a huge amount of, huge body of evidence behind. Mm. It's something that's been studied for, again, you'll probably refer to me, but I'm, I'm assuming probably into the centuries, right? They, they've been aware of this, this, this happening and this timing and the, the daylight and the, the, the nighttime and, yeah. and, and this arrangement of how mammals uh sort of organize their day around these these two real simple things. And people are out there looking at performance, they're looking at improving their well-being and uh mm-hmm. wellness and minimizing illness and and all these things. And we've got this this thing that just is glaringly obvious and glaringly supported and has a massive amount of evidence behind it. But people still look at it and, and sort of dismiss it you know, they don't, they don't regard it. And, and I think in, you know, Western culture, obviously we've manipulated times, we have invented the light bulb and we've, we've, we, we've messed up all these different things around it. So we sort of disregard it. And, and I think there's just so much weight behind it that, 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 that people don't, they don't look at it in the light that they should, that they're, they're more busy, you know, looking out there for these fast solutions to, to big problems essentially. And again, sleep it being probably one of the major ones, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So the sleep field, the circadian rhythm field, as, as research fields are relatively young, and um, it's been known before, but sort of really researching them, you know, um, and scientifically, um, that's relatively speaking to, to other sort of fields is, is relatively young. But um, I think, yeah, people are starting to become more aware of the chronobology the timing system and the, and the big one there the circadian rhythms but right? that's the sort of most pronounced most dominant rhythms um, and the sleep and wake cycle is is the best example for a circadian rhythm and just as a side note so circadian means almost 24 hours so in our body clock uh, sorry in our body we have we have um, a body clock that sits up in the brain it's about fifty thousand cells in the human being and uh, that sets the timing for the rest of the body now almost every cell has its own clock and cells that form an organ like you know the liver or the heart they sort of collectively have a liver clock or a heart clock and they all sort of yeah, they can tick with their own rhythm, but it's really that clock in, up in the brain that kind of synchronizes and coordinates all these other clocks so that they all play nicely together. And a good metaphor, I always find, is, you know, the idea of an orchestra with a conductor. You've got your conductor that kind of, you know, keeps all the musicians sort of on time, tells, you know, who to play and who to be quiet and vice versa. And it's very much what what our body clock um, does does as well. And what I think we're starting to now from a research perspective but much more so from sort of media and public and to understand how important um it is this this inner timing um and how much this inner timing matters as you said for our health and our well-being for our performance performance isn't constant during our day Um, It varies, it has peaks and and, and troughs, and it varies also between people. There isn't, you know, you can't say for everyone, oh, yeah, you know, 10 a.m. in the morning, that's peak performance. That's not true for for everyone. And so the better we understand how the timing works in the body and how it differs between people, the better treatments or performance optimization programs we, we can develop. Um, and I think for me, it's just one another example that we are all different, and there is no one size fits all. In that sense, there isn't a quick solution um, to to a problem here.
0: Okay, so so people will be familiar. Those that, that are familiar, or the listeners that that have seen sort of circadian rhythm talked about, circadian biology talked about, they'll be familiar with the the kind of chart which tells you that at this particular time, but there's a lot of assumptions made in that chart. There's a lot of assumptions as to what time does the sun come up? What time does the sun go down? Obviously they average it all out and it's all, it's all based around, you know, these peaks in blood pressure, peaks in alertness and and, and all these different things. Now, how, how true does that sit that kind of diagram? If, if we look at it from a perspective of, you know, if, if the, the diagram is built around the sun coming up, how accurate are those timings are they, are, they, are they normally pretty much bang on?
1: I wouldn't say so. I think the sequence of things is is true. So, for example, um, we see a peak in in stroke incidence in the early morning hours because that correlates with um, the the heart rhythm and blood pressure, peaks and troughs and so on and so forth. Um, So, you know, the the, the sequence is correct, but pinning it to a particular clock time is, is difficult. Um, and also pinning it to sort of exactly to sunrise and sunset um, can be difficult because we have in people we see different chronotypes and that refers basically to um, your the timing when you sleep and when you are awake Um, and here we see people who go to bed early and they wake up early and we've got people who go to bed very late and you know then they wake up later and the rest of us fall somewhere in in between. And um, so your chronotype as well as, yes, sort of the start as in the sun going up and and the sun going down, they all matter here. So again, the sequence might be right, but I would be careful with pinning it to a particular sort of clock time or even particular position of the sun.
0: Excellent, So, so chronotypes, let's expand a little bit on chronotypes. So, so, is there a way of pinpointing what 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 somebody is with respect to, to a chronotype? Or are they are there millions of them? Is there just a handful of different categories as such that you'd f- fall under, or is there a way that you you know with with, with any of your your patients do you, do you look at them and go right? I'm going to analyze first what what kind of chronotype you are by using this methodology, or we're going to ask a bunch of questions that might. Give me an idea of where you are and then we can work around that and then figure out whether that's correct or not
1: yeah so you can assess chronotype and chronotype is it's not sort of fixed categories it's more of a spectrum with the the larks the early ones on the one hand and the owls the late ones on the other and there's sort of maybe 10 11 12 hours between the earliest lark and the latest owl right and then the rest of us we fall along that spectrum but it's not distinct categories um, You can measure chronotype. You can do this through questionnaires. Um, You can also do it via taking regular blood measurements or urine or saliva measurements. And then what you measure there is the concentration of melatonin. It's something I had to do (laughs) for my PhD. It was sort of asked my volunteers to do regular urine collections and then I had to analyze them. Not my strongest point, I will add, Um, but you, you can measure chronotype through through that. What I do with yeah, with, with my clients, um, I will just ask them, ask them very much about what are your, you know, what time do you go to bed? What time do you wake up? Is this with an alarm clock or naturally? How does that differ between weekend and week or working period and holidays? Um, because what we find is that our social constraints, work schedules or schools for kids, um, these times they sort of, Impose a different schedule on on what we naturally want to do or what our body naturally wants to do. So, yeah, you have to ask a few more few questions there to to really get get to it. But you can assess it. And also, chronotype isn't something that stays the same um, during your Just life. Just about to
0: ask that, yeah,
1: yeah. So anyone with with little children will will know that that typically they go to bed early and wake up early. To the dismay of their parents, who quite like to, you know, have a bit of a sort of lie-in or stay in bed a little bit longer, and then teenagers, we see the clock shifts; it delays. They want to go to bed late, and because they still need nine or ten hours of sleep, they of course then want to have a so-called lie-in in the morning. Um, now, this delay of the clock in the first instance has nothing to do with blue light exposure so phone or laptop or tablet um it's a natural biological phenomenon that the clock delays that sleep time delay when we're teenagers of course blue light emitting devices they make matters worse but they're not the driving force here um and then we are when we are in our sort of 20 21 and the clock shifts forward again and then it's sort of might be relatively stable for a number of years, um, and that's really when we see that spectrum that I was describing. You know, with early's and lates and intermediates. Yep. Um, and then there's another shift um, when sort of women are going through the menopause, um, and also for men, it's not entirely clear what exactly happens, but. Um, Generally, we say women have an earlier chronotype than men, so they want to go to bed earlier than men, yeah. um, and that is true until menopause, and then there is a shift, and that is either that women become later or men maybe become somewhat earlier, um, but it seems like that then the sort of sexes meet in, in sort of right. sleep times.
0: So, do you think there's a hormonal influence there? Because obviously, you know, you know the shift in you know, relative amounts of testosterone versus oestrogen, oestrogen versus testosterone. And obviously during the menopause, there is a shift in that, that kind of percentage and those ratios. Do you think there's something related there to, to, to well, obviously there is a hormonal relationship mm. to all of this, but it, do you think that's related to, to hormonal shifts?
1: Probably could play a role. I, I don't think it's the only reason why that happens, um, but we know that there are oestrogen um, receptors in the brain and also in the clock area. And, and we know that there is an interplay between sleep and um, hormones, as well as the circadian system and um, ovarian hormones. So absolutely, there will be, that will play, um, play a role here. But it's also aging, right, as part of normal aging, sleep. Changes and so does our timing system change. There are changes to that body clock that I was driving, describing, which sits yeah. up there in the brain. There are changes to that, just as part of normal aging, as you know, as as many other things change as well, and and that will have consequences.
0: So, do, do, my understanding is that you know, young children, you know, infants and babies, they require a lot more sleep, and then progressively it's less and less sleep, isn't it, until you you're almost a full grown adult. Does it then reverse? So obviously, as you get, you know, past a certain age, do you then need more sleep or do you need less sleep? Is it, does it, or does it just stay kind of in that ballpark of that seven to nine that we're always kind of thrown at us?
1: Yeah, it's it's a good question. And we're not entirely sure. So what we see exactly what you said, you know, little children or babies and little children, they need a lot of sleep. Teenagers still need somewhere nine to 10 hours. And then adults, yeah, somewhere between seven and nine. And then as we age, it, it might be just an hour less. So let's say if you used to have, I don't know, eight and a half, it might be seven and a half. Um, but it's, it's not, not entirely sure, but it wouldn't be more. It wouldn't be that we suddenly need more sleep when we're older. That would probably more um, be related to, you know, any kind of illness or disease, particularly yeah. something like neurodegenerative diseases
0: and i'm guess that that ties in with also physical activity right so if if you know if, if the the average is 7 to 9 hours for example if you've got somebody who, who who gets great sleep great depth of sleep and you know recovers well off seven if they start to exercise more or train more or put more demands on the body physically or, or cognitively i'm guessing mm-hmm. sleep goes up right
1: yeah, it could absolutely have an impact on, on the sleep, whether that is forever, or whether that is when it's an adjustment period because there's more physical activity and then it might swing back. Um, but absolutely, you know, that there is there is something in this, you know, the more you use the brain and, and the body, um, the more recovery is is needed.
0: Yeah, it's very clever. It's uh, so so there's variability. We've ascertained this, there's huge amounts of variability, right? But the, but there are certain things that we know are kind of. They're given. Science reinforces And We know that the, the, the this pattern kind of occurs. This circadian pattern that we know occurs in 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 kind of that sequence. And this is, you know, we talked uh, about a week or so ago, didn't we and, we? and we mentioned about the. Did you have a look at the studies with the east to west coast? And um,
1: I've I've looked at some. I remind me again what, which one we talked yeah, about. Yeah, so I so so many... mentioned.
0: Yeah, I'd mentioned about the the. the the betting—it was actually brought about by betting against sport in America, where the transition from East to West Coast. So obviously, one team is out of rhythm with their circadian, you know, cycles, and obviously the, the the way I assume in which they train. Right. So you know, if 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 you you have a weight session or whatever, you know, American football or whatever, you might have a, a coaching session in the morning, then you might do your weight in the afternoon, then you might do your cardio in the evening. And there's a pattern formed, right? And then obviously you get used to performing in that particular time. It's kind of what elite athletes do with acclimatization, right? Is that if you're used to performing at your maximal intensity at 4 p.m. in the afternoon, then you shift to somewhere where they're asking you to perform at your maximal intensity at 7 a.m., but you've always done it at 4 p.m., there's going to be a drop in performance. So obviously there's a couple of studies and a bit of data around this East to West Coast phenomenon where they were actually predicting and obviously that came down to gambling and they were predicting the results of games based off circadian biology, which was fascinating. And I was, you know, and, and when, when you find that kind of data, people then start to think about it in a more, you know, reinforced way, I think, because then people go, okay, so there's something new, because obviously clearly people are analyzing and betting on this. So therefore it adds weight to the data almost in that people are going Well, hold on. So I can, I can win money if I, if i bet on the non, you know, the non biologically synced team, it's, you know, it's fascinating. So, so there's kind of those, those bits and pieces out there about it. And and obviously we know from a sporting performance perspective that this does affect sports performance quite significantly. Is that, is that, is that a field that you've ever delved into?
1: No, I'm, I'm, I wouldn't say that specifically with, you know, performance athletes, but it, comes back to your your chronotype, your you know the the time setting within within your body. You know, the the people who are early who who wake up early, they are genuinely their performance peak is also somewhat in the first part of, of the day, mentally as well as physically. Whereas for someone you know who's a late type, that's all shifted by maybe two or or three hours. Um, And so if I train when physically my body, you know, is is kind of set up to do this, I'm gonna be, you know, really good at what what I'm doing. When I then, just like you said, when suddenly, you know, there's this time shift and my inner body clock becomes out of sync with the environmental time, the environmental-like dark cycle, then, yeah, that will have a negative impact on on my performance, and that's a real big question when it comes to performance athletes, um, and it's it's not yet fully understood. But what some research is suggesting that amongst performance athletes, actually there is an overrepresentation of morning people um, versus evening people, um, and that might have something to do with typically when training takes place. And also when the competition, um, when, when that takes, takes place, the, the runs. Um, and they, it, again, like I say, it, it's, more research is, is needed. But I think at the moment, the advice is train when it's good for you. Yeah. I do most of your training there to really improve on your performance. But then also train at times you know, when it's likely that you have to compete. Um, so that your body sort of gets used to also performing at other, you know, less advantageous times.
0: Yeah, it's in, it, it's interesting. I, I remember the, I recall reading, uh, I think it was Malcolm Gladwell. He wrote some uh, stuff about hockey players uh, when he was talking about the 10,000 hours of practice. And there was, there was some interesting data with respect to the the NHL, uh, the ice hockey league in the U S in the, the vast majority of players were all born within three months of each other because at hockey's they start hockey at a very young age. And obviously these teams, they have these incredible academies that look after these players from a very young age. And what they do is they pick all the biggest players. and The biggest players were always the oldest people in that year group. And obviously when you're very young, it's very much defined by age. It's, you know, the older kids are always bigger and that. And then when you get to 15 and 16, people start catching up and overtaking each other and it, it kind of becomes irrelevant. But it was, it, it was interesting that all of the, all of the players were, were, were in this three month birth date. Uh, so they all celebrate their birthdays around a similar time, but the all the professional players that have made it through the academy ranks had been in those things. So it, it's quite interesting to think that there's uh there's almost, there's, a, there's, there's genetics and there's you know, everything that you take on board with sports. And, you know, if you want to play basketball, it's not good if you're five foot two. And, you know, there's all of these factors. And now we've all of a sudden got, we've got this other one, which is, you know, you might actually be influenced by your, your chronotype will, yeah. will dictate whether you're going to perform in a particular sport based on, I guess, when, when that sport actually performs. I mean, you take, take soccer, it's, you know, soccer once upon a time was only ever played on a Saturday afternoon whereas now yeah. they play in the evenings, they play in the mornings. And and I guess there's so many factors there and, and obviously European and international football where teams are traveling across time zones a lot. Right. So I guess a lot of the predictability that was probably existed when a sport was only ever played on one particular day, you know, American football used to played pretty much on a Sunday, wasn't it? And it was, yeah. uh, you know, it's, it's fascinating as you bring all those sort of fields together and start to look at them and go, wow, there's, there's patterns here that we can see. And, and and the chronotype one really interests me in that you know I'm I'm pretty adamant I'm probably a morning person but I'm I'm, I'm not entirely sure now I'm I'm, I'm deliberate I remember as a kid I was very difficult to get out of bed but I think that's you know it's it's been a kid right
1: exactly, but, exactly right like, and as I said it can change right so it depends what yeah. what age that that was um you know it it changes and the different factors your yes your genes are certainly one factor and your, your sex is another, but your light exposure, so when the lights go on and when the lights go off and how regular these times are, that can influence us, there is an influence of um, our food intake or the, the eating patterns, the timing of that, that can, can impact also circadian system, not necessarily the clock up in the brain, but the tissue clocks, for example, the clock in the liver, Right, that's more responsive to sort of food intake and, and rhythms there. So there, there is a lot that's going on. And then social norms, they can also impact. Um, so there, there is a lot and it's probably all sort of, you know, bidirectional. It's not just one direction. that goes in lots of different directions.
0: So lights, let's, let's, let's hone in on lights a little bit because this is an interesting one. Because obviously now, you know, we're in November. I think we've lost what is it ballpark it's about we've nearly lost two hours of sunlight and up until the clock's going back obviously we'd lost about two hours of sunlight and we've fairly quickly i think within about a month uh, you know the the sun used to come up at about 6 a.m and then all of a sudden it was 7 30 and 8 and now it's gone back a little bit mm-hmm. and and we talked briefly about the shifts when we're, we're, we're the call of the week and it was how does that light and that, that change of of times and things affect and and, and again there's, there's a lot of data isn't that with respect to uh you know countries that don't get a lot of light exposure and Mm. certain conditions and depression anxiety etc etc and different ways different nations deal with that i know there's some really interesting stuff in finland various other places where they have actually terms for the way they keep themselves happy and keep themselves content and and blah 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 so so how is is light the big thing that we talk about and is it is it a major major influencer in this whole thing and we talk um Zeitgebers, you know, time mm. and, and these things. So how does light play a role here?
1: Mm. So light light is, you know, maybe the, the most important thing for our body clock. So I said the, the sort of the body clock or the master clock or central clock is different words for it, sits up in the brain and it sets the rhythm for everything else that happens in the body. Now, this clock also needs to be in synchrony with our outside world. Right? so that it tells the body to do the right thing at the right time. There's no use of us running around in the middle of the night and um, trying to catch some prey um, when actually our night vision is pretty poor and you know, a big cat like a lion and so on and so forth can easily come and eat us up or rather not us, our ancestors, who presumably evolved on the African savanna. So what, what is happening is that in our eyes, we have a special photoreceptor system um, that is just for light detection, not for vision, it simply detects light and when that detects light and it is most sensitive to blue light. It's like the strongest signal it can get when it detects light, it passes that message back to the clock up there in the brain. And then that clock knows, ah, it's daytime. And so then it will send message to the rest of the body. It's daytime daytime daytime. And then all the other clocks within the body and all the other tissues and the organs, they know what to do. And then when the eyes suddenly see darkness, because that's also, you know, information, when they see darkness, they pass that to the clock and then the clocks, okay, body, now it's nighttime. And that's by the way, when melatonin sort of springs into action. And I guess lots of listeners will, will have heard of melatonin. It's basically a hormone that's, Um, under the sort of the control of the clock, and that signals the rest of the body, nighttime it's on its way. It's not a sedative, it's not a sleepiness hormone or something like that. It very much tells the rest of the body, hey, nighttime it's on its way. It has a bit of a sleep promoting effect, um, but that's not really its job. Um, So coming back to to the light. So this, this light is immensely important to let our body clock know day has started, right? And equally we want the darkness because that signals the night. And so in an ideal, ideal scenario, and that is what you know, our ancestors had um, and we have unfortunately lost, is we would spend most of our waking day outside in the natural daylight. And then when the sun goes down, you know that is the signal, okay, now it's nighttime. The problem we have now in modern living is that we have electric lighting. And so we can manipulate the light environment um, around us. And while the light levels, generally indoors, are much, much lower than outside, even an overcast day, it is still brighter outside than it is indoors. Um, And that sort of means for most of the day, the clock doesn't really know "Mm, what should I be saying. the evening the light is is then unfortunately strong enough to suggest to our body clock hey it's still daytime um which is why the clock will very much for most of the evening as long as the lights on tell the body daytime 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 now what we can then do we must have you know snipped our finger we turn the light off in a millisecond but for our body clock you know a biological system it takes much longer to to get that message and then to relate it to the body um which is one reason probably why some people having problems falling asleep or their sleep quality is reduced um, because it's just this messaging comes too late or is is too weak in some way or another
0: yeah i was i was i was just about to mention that because that, obviously you know during the course of a day it might be i was thinking we have a we have a a, a courtroom out in the, in the hallway and, and it's pitch black inside of it so if I was to go in there in the middle of the day and shut the door and it's dark my brain doesn't all of a sudden go it's ready to sleep and it's the same with light isn't it, light we need a certain amount of it and you mentioned about you know I have a uh, it's usually sat on, it might actually be in my bag there, I have a light meter uh, a, a proper industrial light meter that I can check the lighting but I have an app on my phone which does a pretty good job to be fair, they're fairly close to each other but the light in my office is about 800 lux at, at best. And I have a whopping great window in front of me that shines light through it. But I know if I walk outside, that number just multiplies infinitely. It goes crazy. And then obviously in the winter months, I, have a, I actually have a, an SAD light there that, that goes on in the morning. Mm-hmm. Because in the winter months, I get up at a time when it's dark. So it doesn't really work for me so so there's a certain amount of light isn't it that we need and there's also a certain amount of darkness that we need and we need to have that for a significant amount of time before your brain starts to register and then clock and do these things which is i think we kind of what you alluded to there and we talked about blue light and just just for clarity blue light with because there's such an association now with blue light and devices mm-hmm. people when when we refer to blue light people always think screens you know phones and devices but but when we're referring to blue light what are we actually referring to what 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 is blue light and what is the difference mm,
1: so good question so the, the the light that we see that white lights is made up of different colors right different sort of um have a diff, yeah of different colors um and there is blue light in there there's red light there's green light you know there's more purple all these different colors are are in there um for us it all seems white but that special photoreceptor in in our eyes, that's particularly sensitive to, to the blue light, right? And um, that's naturally in the, in the daylight. And the content of that blue light varies across the day. And that in itself also provides our clock with information, right? This change in that spectral contribution that's happens again that the clock will use that as a signal of ah okay we're changing the colors in the light that means you know nighttime is on its way the devices that we use phone laptops you know all these screen devices um they're also made up of different um different wavelengths of light for us just visible as as white light but it's got these different colors and there is a lot of blue light in them and so that this blue light keeps stimulating that photoreceptor in the eyes and therefore therefore the body clock. Um, And not only is there a lot of blue in them, typically we hold the phone very close to our face, right? So all that light that's coming off that phone screen goes in. Laptop, tablet, similar. TV, I'd say is different. It's the same LED screen, but it's much further away yeah. Right. So typically, when clients say, "Oh, is it okay to watch TV in the evening?" I say, "Yeah, as long as you have a little side lamp on, right, which will also help to diffuse the light coming from the screen. That's all interacting. Another thing that I learned um, quite painfully during my PhD, um, that all interacts. Um, I'm less worried about. Right. I just, on a side note, I would say there, you know, just turn the TV off maybe half an hour, an hour before. Again, there's no fixed sort of cutoff time. It depends on the person. Um, and be, of course, mindful what you're watching. You know, some people get more sort of stimulated as in the brain gets more stimulated by certain shows, news or movies than others. Um, just be a bit mindful. But on a whole, I'm less worried about the TV than I am of the phone or um, something like a tablet that's right in front of you.
0: Yeah, th- this is something that I've kind of referred to quite a bit as sort of the topics, right? Is that the topic of TV and, and what you're watching and is it stimulating and blah, blah, blah. And I, I went through this phase probably about 10 years ago where you know I got into this whole, oh, you've got to read before you go to bed. The problem is, is that, and again, if you, you take a look at my bookshelf, that there's nothing there that wouldn't be stimulating, so the problem was is that I read, I read facts. I don't read fiction. I don't read things that are kind of calming or anything like this. I read stuff that ultimately I put the book down and then I think f- mm. repeatedly for a long time afterwards. So what was happening is I was putting the book down and then lying in bed just unable to sleep for a, a large period of time because it stimulated my brain so much. So I had to actually step away from reading at night because it was causing me problems. And, and I reverted back to a habit of when I was a kid was to watch TV before I go to bed. Which, which felt alien, it felt wrong. It felt like I wasn't following the you know, the social media representation of what you know, performance should be and everybody should read and you should go to bed and you should read and you should journal and do all these different things. And I was saying, well, you know, why is this not working for me? But the TV calms me. It, it gives me something almost fairly mind-numbing that, that prevents me overthinking. I'm a real, if I lie down in a, in a dark room, I just, my brain goes crazy. It's like, yeah, yeah, absolutely, right? So it was, it, it, and and it's that variability, I think, between people, isn't it? That you, you know, that you're trying to manage. And it was interesting to hear you say that look, you have people who say, "Is it okay to watch TV?" And obviously, there's fairly various things that you can put in place there that make it, yeah, it's perfectly okay, provided you do this, 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 this. And what about? So we hear a lot now about blue light blocking. Mm-hmm. The devices have little little uh, things on that you can swipe across and put into the. Onto the screens, I, the data I've read on that—that's not very convincing. They—they they seem to be pretty poor. These screen uh, diffusers, almost that, that that are built in. But but we hear a lot about blue light blocking glasses, and you know there's yellow ones. There's there's different lights that they block out. But but how effective are these? Are, they, are these are a, a, a suitable thing for people to have if they they have to be on screens until later in the evening?
1: Mm, yeah, there's a good point. They have to be right. And um, so, yeah, there's. So there are studies that that do show that wearing um, blue blockers or blue blocking glasses um, in the evening is can be can be helpful. Um, so, yeah, I would suggest you know if you have to, uh, then reduce the blue light content on your screen for what it's worth. If you can reduce the brightness, yeah, so that it still feels comfortable, and yeah, have those. Um, blue light blocking glasses on. The other point for me, though, there is, you know, if if you have to.
0: Excuse me.
1: If you have to, um, because often the phone, in particular the phone, uh, is just a way of passing time. We're just bored and how often, you know, do we sit and watch a movie or or show on TV and you've got your phone out um, at the same time?
0: Having a coughing fit there. <laughs> I'm back with you. I think <coughs> I've got a,
1: I've got a terribly
0: on. bad throat at the moment.
1: <laughs> I use that to cough as well. Then, because I had it yeah. early on, it was like
0: oh. It's like sneezing as soon as one person starts and yawns. Yeah, Then the others no? <laughs> I think I've got tears in my eye here, and I'm I'm trying to <laughs> prevent myself from coughing here. <laughs> it's one of those nasty tickly coughs. It just sits there and.
1: Anyways, I <laughs>
0: carry on. I, I turned the volume down. I thought I'll, I'll carry on here. and. Uh, okay,
1: I wasn't sure. That's why I stopped. Um, blue blocking glasses, right? That's yes. what we're talking about. Yeah. So it's, I want to come back to the have to right um for sure some people have to you know check emails um late or maybe work late because they're on a case or they work in an international um international company and so on and so forth but there's also many of us um where looking at the phone is just a way of passing time There is, in that sense actually no pressing need it's just become a habit um it's kind of thing that we do because out of boredom. But then there's also, of course, the fear of missing out. So there's a lot of psychological things happening here. But what I work on with with my clients is to not necessarily say, you cannot look at your phone after 9pm, because that's just, again, an arbitrary rule. um, And that's not necessarily going to fix a poor sleep. Um, But what we work on, first of all, is just to notice that urge, The urge to pick up that phone and look at it and then do a quick assessment. Do I really have to? Or is it because I'm bored or whatever? You know, I'm feeling a bit low and want to distract myself from that feeling. So it's just to become a bit more mindful of of what's going on in their body and why, and then making a decision. Right. And sometimes that will be yep, I'm feeling a bit bored. Um, Yeah, I'm aware of what blue light does or could potentially do. I am still choosing to pick up the phone now, but another night they might say, no, actually I don't. Right. Um, so that's, that's another thing. It's it's really this, do I really have to, for some people, yes, it will. And then the blue blue blocking glass is great, but for others, actually it isn't necessary.
0: It's almost, you know, you're tapping very much into behavioral psychology there. Right. And you're starting to get into, you know, the reason why people do things and, uh, contextual cues and all these things that, that that ingrain with habits that we do and things that we do and almost rationalizing why we do them. You know, it's, it's, it's like people who have a drink of an evening. Quite often it's just a matter of turning around and saying, well, what's the purpose behind it and why do you do it? Yeah. And, and I always go back on nutrition where people would almost ban. They'd say, look, you're not allowed something. And it's, uh, they classify it as kind of the white elephant scenario where, you're told not to think about something, so you do. So you give them this arbitrary rule of turning your phone off at 9 p.m. You know, then there's a level of anxiety that raises because they actually want to be on their phone, right? Yeah. So it almost becomes counter, counterproductive,
1: right? Yeah, exactly. And also the, the other thing is then they do it and then it's like, right, whew, I followed the rule. Surely I'll fall asleep now. And then they wait. And there's added yeah.
0: anxiety around.
1: Exactly, exactly. So that's why I you know avoid rules as much as i can i work on healthy habits which you can adapt which you know absolutely depending on what's going on in in your life um rather than these very strict instructions and, and rule settings
0: i uh, you, you you're wanting to relax people right and and there's nothing less relaxing than a set of rules that you've got to abide by yeah exactly boxes you've got to take you almost want everything to be kind of like you're know, really you know relaxed and natural and normal and 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 th- th- there's quite a lot of, you know, which is encouraging. You you read a lot about sleep now. And and whenever we've talked to sleep experts or people in the sleep field, there's an awful lot of emphasis away from the time that you sleep. There's a lot of emphasis on the rest of the day. You know, the last sleep expert we talked about, it, we, we spent the entire podcast talking about the morning and then mm-hmm. we talked about light exposure and all the things that we've been talking about. And it's nice to see that there is this kind of, there's this relaxed output with respect to sleep, whereas once upon a time it was go to bed, turn off the light, and fall asleep whereas now there's look if you're not tired and not you don't feel sleepy, don't go to bed because you're going to lie in bed and probably think about the fact you should be sleeping and and we've all been there I mean i I remember you know many years ago I, I used to lay in bed quite often in, at night and think I've got to sleep I've got to sleep and you're kind of forcing your eyes shut and trying to do. Yeah you know, and it becomes counterintuitive and, it, and fundamentally it never works, right? It never works. So, so when you're looking at people, because obviously sleep is your speciality that it's, it's came out the back of this. And I'd, I'd like to say, it isn't really sleep. It's kind of day management, isn't it? It's, it's management of everything. It just so happens that the, the, the culminating factor at the end of this is an improvement in people's sleep, right? So, yeah. so when we talk about sleep, we, sleep's kind of, this, again, it's an arbitrary number, right? People say you need seven to nine hours sleep, but obviously we've got sleep varies, right? Sleep is this massive, uh, you know, we've got different stages, we've got different types of sleep that manage different things. We've got true recovery. And, and, and I guess when we're talking about sleep, we're talking about recovery, right? We're talking about how well can someone recover from, you know, consolidate memories, you know, recover physically, you know, uh, do all the things that they need to do when they sleep and and again, there's this big mystery, isn't there, over sleep still, is that we're not yeah. entirely sure why we need it. it it's exactly. it's remarkable, isn't it? It's, it's, it's like this, you know, and you dig into it, and you're like, nobody actually really knows. It's, it's still this huge mystery as to why, but we need it. We, we've ascertained we need it. So, so when we talk about sleep, what are we talking about? Are we talking about, so if I was to have seven to nine hours sleep, and this is just me with my eyes shut, me in some stage of sleep, doesn't matter which stage it is, is that adequate or do I need to be hitting a certain? And again, we've got devices now, you know, I'm wearing two devices and I'm sure you've got devices mm-hmm. and everybody's got devices and everybody's looking at the quality of their sleep. So what are we actually looking for when it comes to sleep? What are we looking for, for optimal recovery? What are we looking for, for, uh, depth of sleep, rapid eye movement? Where are we looking at here? Mm-hmm. We're
1: looking at a lot. Um, comes back to the variability that you mentioned a couple of times before, and in the same way that we see, you know, that spectrum of chronotypes. Um, we see, you know, that people vary in how much sleep they need, how much sleep they need. And by the way, and again, sort of timing, right. And um, so that sort of goes, they, they go hand in hand there. Um, so there is no fixed amount that's right for everyone. And even that amount changes over the course of the life, as we as we talked about early on. The best way to find out, you know, is the sleep that I'm getting, uh, is that right for me? The duration, the timing, and sort of related to that, the quality, is that right for me? Is when you is to look at when you wake up, how do I feel? Right? That's that's in the way the best thing. And for that, you don't need a device. You just need to be able to objectively listen and pay attention to yourself and how you feel, right? That's, that's the key thing. And again, that is something I, I help my clients to, they are not necessarily develop. It's kind of probably just rediscover, right? Because that's there, that yeah. sleep sense. So they just have to re- rediscover that. Um, now, for many of us, It's fair to say that, again, because of the society we live in, social expectations and and commitments and so on and so forth, we probably uh, do not get the duration of sleep that we need, we're probably not sleeping at the right time. What we we see, certainly pre-pandemic, was that vast amounts of the population would get an hour or sometimes even two hours less a night during the working week. And then, you know, sleep in a different way, as in different duration, do slightly different times on the weekend. Um, and that takes its toll on, on the system, on, on our health, physical as well as, as mental health. So the key really is to find out, well, what is my personal sleep window? And there's an easy way to do that, is to take five days holiday, not leave the UK, so stay in the same time zone, yeah. not go out drinking, partying, and also being mindful with blue light emitting devices in the evening. And then just go to bed as and when you feel sleepy and get up when you wake up. And because, as I said, most of us, we carry this sleep debt. We need to repay that in some way. Um, and that's probably what we do typically over maybe four or five nights, which is why, you know, on that fifth day, you then would know, okay, these are my sleep times. This is the sleep durations that I need in order to feel refreshed okay. and then it's just about wherever you can organizing your day that you are you know in bed at that time and for that duration won't happen every night because life's life you know work if children could get ill you get ill you know you travel so there naturally will be some disruption and um, but that's okay as long as these things remain outliers and we get into this this rhythm right
0: okay so a big question we always get asked is about shift work and obviously there's there's some there's pretty scary and and uh quite daunting data when it comes to shift work and obviously illnesses uh cancers and and various other things and and obviously the problematic scenario that shift work puts us into and we always used to contend this with, from a nutritional standpoint is people were always look at work shifts when should i eat and the the answer was often you know we go back and the answer would just be look when you wake up have your breakfast and just follow suit for the rest of the day and just treat the day like it it would be normally and and you know it's all you've done is just shift everything if you get up at 2am in the morning you eat your breakfast at 2am in the morning then you have your lunch 3 to 4 hours later and then you etc cetera, etc cetera, and you just follow a normal pattern and then that often seems to be kind of the best solution to it now if if, if you've got people on shift work who are switching from time ultimately time zone to time zone right on a you know bi-weekly basis or whatever it might be what's the best way of managing that is that a matter of you know using technology to our advantage and saying right what we're going to do is we're actually going to expose ourselves to you know maybe using a, a light device are we going to expose ourselves to light and obviously when it comes to our theoretical bedtime which might be the middle of the day for some people do we then simulate the darkness do we do we start to you know, close blinds and do we get some blackout blinds and things like this and actually start to simulate this environment where it's nighttime theoretically you know uh you know how do people manage that or, or do you have suggestions as to how people go about that
1: it's, it's really tricky so i worked for quite some time with shift workers from safety critical industry so you know anywhere there's a 24-7 operation and if someone falls asleep that will cause a massive incident. So there could be, you know, pilots, flight attendants, miners, gas rig workers, all of that. And they work all kinds of shift patterns. And in particular, I would say aviation um, is is it, even not necessarily worse, but there's even less regularity because for most shift workers, they they know I'm working X many days, night shift, and then you know day shift or whichever rotation. Um, but it it is fundamentally hard to prepare for that because you have these constant changes right, that, that are happening. And our biology is set up in the way that we are awake when there's light and we're asleep when it's dark. Um, and everything in our body, not just the wake and the sleeping, but every process in our body is set up for this. So the liver, the stomach, um, the heart, they will work the hardest, right? They are expecting food to come in, in the light phase. And then when it goes dark, they expect no more food to be coming. So hormones don't need to be released. Enzymes enzymes don't need to be at the ready because there shouldn't be any food to, to digest what happens for someone who changes from a night shift onto a day shift, which happens within, you know, something, 24 hours, um, the the biology can't turn itself on its head that quickly. And so what what then happens while we can choose when to eat and when not to eat, that's under our control. So I can, in that sense, change my my eating times, uh, but my physiology, actually hasn't hasn't flipped right so suddenly i decided 12 midnight to have a little snack to kind of because my alertness is slowly dipping so you know maybe i have a coffee or i have an energy bar or something that goes into the stomach but the stomach isn't prepared for that and suddenly that's there and so then it's almost like the stomach has to wake up and do something with this um but the pancreas you know further down the line hasn't got that message takes even longer for the pancreas to get the message hey actually you know there's now some food and you need to do something. Um, so what that leads to basically is an inner disruption of the different processes of the different tissues and organs within our body. And that then, you know, sets the scene for metabolic diseases, diabetes, obesity, cardiovascular diseases. Um, so coming back to your question, how do you manage this? Uh, it's intrinsically hard and it's well recognized that shift workers have a high rate of metabolic diseases. Right, because of these constant disruptions. Um, now, what I would say to someone who is going on to a night shift, a swing of nights, is when it comes to eating, um, eat at the start of your night shift. So that could be, you know, early evening, late afternoon, depending when it is. Um, that is your, your, your main meal. And then throughout your shift, um, if at all, have healthy, light snacks. Um, if you want to consume caffeine, you know, do so maybe in the first part of your night shift, but then cut that caffeine out, sure, stay hydrated. Um, and then when you get home, it's probably better to have a light breakfast. Um, and it's really interesting. Some, some shift workers, I remember saying, you know, I come home and I go to bed straight away. If I if I don't do that, I won't fall asleep. Others have said, oh, I stay awake a little bit and then I go and find it easier to fall asleep. Um, again, it, there is no one-size-fits-all strategy, um, but what all are you know, typically saying is it's hard to sleep during the day, even if you have blackout lines, even if you have earplugs in, because there is just the natural disruption. And there's only so much you can control. I remember on, on one mine site that I was at, um, there were so many people who complained about their neighbours lowering their morn, and I thought, wow, I mean, that grass needs to be super short now because I've heard the stories so many times. But that's completely out of their control, right? And um, that's just environmental factors all sort of, you know, and then you have that inbuilt rhythm of being awake when there is light um, and sleep when it's when it's dark.
0: Yeah, no, and, and, and that kind of brings us on to, well, it kind of brings it into another topic, which, which is an interesting one that kind of ties in with all of this. And that is the, uh, you know, the... the the popularity I guess of, of, you know, dieting, nutritional methodology, methodology around fasting. And obviously yeah. fasting is, is something that, that, you know, it's very popular. There's some great data behind it. And that there's obviously a lot of correlations in with what, what we're talking about here with respect to shift works, because obviously if somebody fasts for periods of time, all of a sudden you can actually manage your days feasibly better because, you know, if you're, you're only eating once or twice a day, you in a fasting regime or you've got these big blocks of time where you actually don't need to eat it then all of a sudden becomes quite easy to manage right whereas when you're trying to eat four meals a day you know on these alternating shift patterns it all of a sudden becomes quite complex it becomes quite complicated and that was a you know i always remember that was the, the challenge that we had it was always well i've got to eat x amount of calories and i've got to eat x amount of times a day but i sleep between the hours of you know maybe 6 p.m and 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 you know one a.m. in the morning, and, and I get home and I, I I sleep during those sort of strange hours or peculiar hours, and then it was this kind of trying to jam it all in. So it's quite interesting. And and do you know much? Obviously, it's a very different field, I guess, the the nutritional stuff. But uh, do you, do you pick up much on the the fasting uh, sort of data or fasting trend that's that it's kind of very popular at the moment? Mm,
1: yeah. So fasting. For- For me, from a circadian perspective, what's interesting is time-restricted eating or time-restricted feeding, if it's for animals. Um, And and what's coming through more and more, it's it's not just what we eat, it's the when, right? The timing, and again, the regularity. And in the way that I was talking about that sleep window, um, we also want to have a regular eating window. And ideally, that eating window sits with our wake period when there is daylight outside because in evolutionary terms again that's what our ancestors would have done right they would have eaten while it's light and they yeah. you know would have been fasting when it's when it's dark which is why kind of it has evolved that the stomach is active is ready for food in the day and then you know slows slows down and what, what research is showing there for that eating window, that it seems to be beneficial to keep that eating window to um, less than 12 hours. Um, you know, maybe 11, 10, some people manage to do eight. Uh, I don't quite know how, but, you know, they can. Um, and keeping it certainly to less than 12 within sort of the light phase, that has beneficial impacts on our metabolic health and related to that then also on our sleep, but also for our mental health. And for those people who want to uh, lose weight, what some data is suggesting is that we um, have our din- dinner early, early evening, maybe in the afternoon, and yeah, have, have our dinner then, that can help losing weight. That doesn't mean we have to restrict our, cal- our calories, just that eating window, that is much shorter and it ends way before we go to bed. So that's, I find quite interesting. And that is certainly something that comes up in conversation with clients. Yeah.
0: There's uh, the, the, there's always, there's always interesting stuff coming out with respect to nutrition, but fasting and time restricted eating, are, uh, you know, however different people term it and people have different rules around it, but fundamentally we're still trying to achieve the same physiological yeah. outcome at the end of it uh, is, 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 a really interesting field and something that, that I'm sure we'll, we'll dig into in further podcasts with, with, with other people who are uh, in those areas a little bit more, but so, so other things, I guess, I guess it's, you know, your experience in that field is, you know, is vast and obviously being in that field, you know, what's out there that's exciting right now? What's, you know, what's emerging, what's coming through, what are we finding out now that's, that's kind of fresh on you or, new or what do we know about you know? Because obviously we're we're going back and again the fasting thing is is obviously you know a lot of mammals they they eat they eat once a day they you know they they, they or they graze or they you know and there's all these different patterns that, that different mammals have but ultimately we're talking about mammalian biology here right. So which, you know, you started with the meerkats, which was, you know, everybody's getting up and all the people around me are quite chipper now because everybody's, you know, everybody's getting up at the right time they should be. So what are the emerging things? What are the exciting things? What You know, where are we going with circadian biology? Is it going to be something that there's going to be more and more research in? Is there going to be, you know, a lot of exciting data come in? Is there going to be, you know, where's it going? What's, you know, Mm. what can we expect from it all?
1: Yeah, I think a lot more um, that sort of term circadian health, I think, will become bigger. And one is around nutrition and that eating window and that, you know, personalising that. And as well as the eating window is, is what you eat. You know, there's different people react to the same type of food in different ways. So I guess that that's that's really interesting. Um, but but then there is also, um, you know, when we administer certain medication or certain treatments, that again there, there there is um data showing um i don't know I can't really exactly remember but chemotherapy may work better at certain times of the internal as in your internal time yeah. than at other internal times right so that that can have huge implications um as i say for treatments for medication maybe even surgery who knows so that's that will be much better um understood um And then also, I think how our circadian timing system works, I think that will also be better understood at the moment. The the view is that it's very hierarchical, which is what I outlined. We've got that clock up in the brain. It's like the master or central clock, and that tells everyone else, every other clock, what to do or coordinates them. Um, But it's very much a top-down. What we, I think, seeing more and more is actually that there's a feedback loop and that these clocks in the peripheral, right, in the organs, they can also respond to other time cues. Like I said, for example, the the eating or um, scheduled exercise, right, that can, if you've got regularly scheduled exercise, that can entrain your lung on a slightly different rhythm and so on and so forth. Um, And I think the better we understand all of that, and the better recommendations we can then give to shift workers, to come back to one of your questions, we can then give to shift workers to help them adapt better or quicker, right? Um, to reduce the, um, the risk of diseases there.
0: Fascinating. I mean, I mean it is it, it is such an emerging field, and as you know, as as we both know that when it comes to research, research is 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 new when it's twenty years old, and then it's uh, yeah. you know, and then it starts to emerge. And and and, and I think the field of uh, you know circadian biology, and certainly with, with respect to humans, because. Years ago, it was all very much done on insects and uh, you know small creatures and 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 we're now actually observing and I and I think that you know th- there is so much more data available, right? Is that is that these devices and things like this are these useful tools for people to be utilising? You know, we chatted briefly about it about the 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 obsessive tendency that people have with, with devices that all of a sudden they're being led by some digital algorithm rather than necessarily what they and and you referenced you know getting up in the morning and seeing how you feel. And I guess there's got to be a lot of self-awareness there, right?
1: You know, yeah, exactly. Somebody,
0: yeah, somebody getting up in the morning and going, you know, do you feel good? I think there's a lot of people don't actually know what good feels like. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's a building of that self-awareness. So how do you develop that in people? And obviously how does that relate to you know, the previous question?
1: Mm-hmm. So I think devices have their time and place. And I think there's still a lot of sort of improvement to the technologies that that will happen um, and i would never just dis- 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 count them entirely but for me as yes yeah, as i said it's much more empowering the individual to better understand your body right because then you can make better decisions all, all around and it starts with how do i feel when i wake up in the morning um, but then also you know across the day how how often do i reach for caffeine or the quick you know sugar fix what's my mood like how does my mood change across across the day Right. Um, but looking at that with an objective, like a scientist mind, rather than subjectively, oh, this is all bad, oh god, my mood had just dropped, oh my god, I have the second piece of chocolate. Oh, this is bad, this is all you know, horrible. Right? We want to do that objectively, collect, collect that data. You know how how do we do that? I think one is to empower clients with an understanding, you know, of of how things work, um, you know, how sleep works, um, circadian rhythms, how things just you know the rhythm of alertness for example that changes across the 24 hour clock um sort of it starts to rise in the morning with or without in coffee it just does it rises but then it has a dip around lunchtime and then it rises again and has its peak just before you go to bed and then it flips and it goes down right so just learning to to observe that and for me the way i go about apart from helping my clients understand is also um, it's basic mindfulness skills to stop, almost press the pause button and just check in. What am I feeling inside my body, right? Emotionally, physically, mentally, You know what's going on and just do that, you know, throughout the day, just just for a few seconds, just sort of starting to build up that knowledge um, by just pressing the pause button. And I think the added benefit that, by the way, has given, you know, we live in this fast paced world um, where we do lots of work simultaneously and it's always the next, the next, the next. Having this moment of pause, you know, just helps to slow everything down. Lower cortisol, lowering um, adrenaline, giving the brain maybe a moment to just catch up with itself before we then speed up again. Um, And that can have a positive impact on the nighttime sleep. So it comes back to something that you said earlier on, you know, you spoke in an episode, with a sleep specialist, you know, actually, it, it's the daytime that matters, it absolutely is, and I think having these moments of pausing are super essential,
0: and that's just a, almost like a reset. In the, you know, we uh, I was reading a piece about all these the, the big kind of blue chip companies and uh, you know, Google and. Uh, YouTube offices, and blah blah blah, all all reinforcing this, this this biphasic sleep pattern almost, where they were saying, look, we want to give our employees this opportunity to rest at this point where we get this natural sort of circadian biological slump later in the afternoon, where people are saying, look, take a moment, you know, take 15 minutes, go and take a walk outside, get some sunlight, whatever it might be, you know, or ideal scenario is 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 it ideal? That's probably my question to you. Is it ideal to, to to have a nap at that point? And again, there's these time limitations on naps where we don't want to get into too deep sleep, but you also don't want to just just kind of rest our eyes. Or do we? You know, what would be and biphasic and polyphasic sleep is obviously, you know, it, this is all more stuff that's that's emerging. But again, we've got to put it into a practical scenario.
1: Yeah. I'm, I'm a big
0: fan of all of this stuff, but but um, really when you put it into a practical application, it's not for the majority of people, having a sleep in the afternoon just isn't feasible. But, but where do you sit with that? Is that an optimal thing to do? Is that a good thing to do if, if opportunity arises? Is it, you know, where do you sit with that?
1: Depends on the person. So someone who's a normal, good sleeper, um, you know, who, who wakes up feeling refreshed. Um, if that person wants to have an afternoon nap, sort of early afternoon, maybe sort of one, two o'clock, certainly not, not later than three, for 20 minutes, half an hour, absolutely fine, right, because um, that shouldn't have an impact on their nighttime sleep. If you're someone who suffers from insomnia or another sleep problem, where the quality or the quantity of your sleep at night is reduced, then the danger is that this nap can become a way of substituting for the poor sleep at night. And there I would say, no, you know, let's not have that. Let's work on, you know, improving that nighttime sleep. Um, but but for those, you know, who sleep fine and who can nap, so my dad is a napper, I'm a non-napper, I can sit down, I can close my eyes, but typically I don't fall asleep, whereas my dad does his 20 minutes and then boom, you know, he's full of energy again. Um, so so people vary b- between that. Um, but I think from a sort of practical point of view, to come back to that, I think that's, that's really important. Um, I think it is important to recognize that there is a dip in alertness in the early afternoon right? and to to slow down. It's a signal again that our body is sending us Um, and I have got a choice here. I can push against this biological signal and in a way biological need for slowing down Um, and that will come at a cost or I can just go with it and use it as a way of recharging. There's lots of studies that have shown that taking breaks boosts your energy levels and your work engagement, and therefore productivity, um, and naps um, very much so. They also boost you know, memory consolidation, so you get that effect there as well. So I think it's, it's hugely important to, to take that moment of, of slowing down.
0: Yeah, I, I, I remember doing, I used to do some corporate wellness stuff probably 15 or 20 years ago we used to refer to a lot of the stuff that was coming out of Japan at the time which was you know about you know they would start their day on the the rooftops of these these big big buildings and and the first thing that would happen is they they'd expose themselves to a huge amounts of light which maybe at that, that point I don't recall it ever being referenced as that was one of the goals it was just kind of a default happening you know it's a bit like people who walk their dog and they, they Oh, all of a sudden I feel really good in the morning because I walk my dog and then you've got you've got exercise you know probably one of the strongest zeitgivers, givers or time givers that we can can have right with circadian you know r- rhythmicity and then we've got movement and we've got light and we're tying them both in together and and you know this is what they used to do they used to take all their employees first thing in the morning whether they'd walk to work or whatever it might be and they used to make them do these you know aerobics classes almost mm. on the on the rooftop of these buildings and it was this acknowledgement of rather than trying to, you know, drive ourselves into the ground, which I think a lot of people do themselves now, whereas, you know, corporates, uh, uh, still do it to employees, but I think a lot of people do that to themselves now because of this whole, you know, this hustle mentality and this mentality of, you know, I I read a thing just the other week of a a celebrity who'd been harping on about, you know, the the hustle and the grind, they called it. And he was getting up at two AM in the morning and starting his day at two in the AM in the morning. But then it showed you his schedule, but he went to bed at seven. And it, and it was just um, this, this whole, so people were going, oh, he's, you know, he's, he's a harder worker than everybody else. And you just look at it and think, well, if he's got a reason to do it that way, that's fine. But it, he's just following the same pattern everybody else is. He's just decided to get up at 2 a.m. in the morning instead, which, which if it works for him and works with, hey, go ahead. But, but, but it was almost like it was painting this picture that he was doing something that nobody else was prepared to do. And and it was just this complete shift. He's getting the same sleep everybody else is getting. He's just sort of moved his day around a little bit, and it was just this bizarre mentality. And I think there's this corporate thing, isn't there now, where you know people don't want to give employees breaks, they don't want to let them recharge. They just think they can hammer them and hammer them. And I think this is this this is playing into the the, the caffeine narrative, which is yeah. you know, we're a society that you know, I mean, coffee as a as an industry. Is unreal. The energy drink market is unreal. Obviously, we we talk a lot about caffeine because we made a very very concerted decision not to put caffeine into one of our products. Which, Mm -hmm. which to the dismay of a lot of people, that the first question we always get is why didn't you put caffeine in there? Which would go against our narrative, which is we're trying to educate more on caffeine and the use of caffeine as opposed to necessarily demonising it and saying caffeine is this awful thing that shouldn't be be using when when in fact the data and the research on caffeine and particularly coffee as well is fantastic it's a it's a wonderful supplement if used intelligently so where 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 is your stance on caffeine where are you a, are you a caffeine consumer
1: absolutely and i had my coffee you know this, this morning <laughs> absolutely um you know um, but so so caffeine again you know it it's been shown to boost our our alertness um, and I think to really get the maximum effects out of it, uh, we should be, in that sense, limiting the intake and not drink it like water. You know, drink, consume that caffeine when you need that alertness boost. Having said that, there's a caveat because caffeine's half, time, half life is, is very long. And so, you know, caffeine consumed within six or nine hours of our normal bedtime window could potentially impact sleep and certainly anything that's you know very consumed very closely to bedtime uh, is, is likely to do reduce the quality but also it can shift the sleep onset so when we fall asleep can sleep that can put that backwards so having a cup of coffee you know in the morning absolutely fine I wouldn't have it first thing because your alertness naturally rises so save it for maybe around lunchtime when there is that slump And one thing that we used to recommend or its general recommendation, particularly for lorry drivers, um, if they feel tired, is to say, okay, so pull over, you know, have a cup of coffee, then sleep for 20 minutes, then go, you know, for a quick walk around around the lorry uh, and then continue driving. Because the caffeine takes about 20 minutes to actually exert its effects, which you can use to sleep. And then once you get up, you know, move around, you've got the movement, you're outside, you get the light um, sort of alertness boost. And then, you know, you've got sort of in a way a a triple whammy. Um, So I think, yeah, it's not to demonize it. It's just knowing how it works, when to use it, you know, to your maximal advantage. That's the importance.
0: Yeah, and this, the, the comeback we often get, and, and I've got throughout my entire career of dealing with, you know, high-performance individuals, whether they're athletes or CEOs of businesses or whatever it might be, would be, but I have caffeine in the afternoon and we're talking three, four o'clock typically here, and I sleep fine. And this is kind of goes back to our previous question of, about quality of sleep because obviously people are still falling asleep, but what's happening is is. The depth of sleep and the quality of sleep that you're getting is actually being impacted. So, on a on a surface level, they're going, "Well, I get my seven to nine hours, so there's no problem." So, so it's then mm-hmm. convincing them that, "Hold on, but but you know, physiologically, you know that caffeine is still in your system, which means it is disrupted." It's it's a bit like the alcohol discussion, mm-hmm. right? Is that is the alcohol we know detrimentally affects the quality of your sleep? It doesn't necessarily affect falling asleep or being able to fall asleep. It's just actually when you get into a sleep state, it's just not very good. It, yeah. it, it disrupts and you actually, you know, I, I think you actually wake up, don't you?
1: Yeah, you so you, you, you do fall asleep maybe a bit quicker. It has sort of soporific effects on, on, on um, most people, not all. Um, but then the second half of the night, it will disrupt your sleep much, much more. And in that sense, it deprives you particularly of the REM sleep because first half of the night, um, you mentioned we have these different sleep stages. Um, we have a lot of the deeper sleep. And then the second half of the night, we have more of the REM sleep. REM sleep seems to be important for the emotional processing of our day-to-day experiences. Um, and that is the stage that is constantly, not constantly, but frequently um, disrupted. And so there's some interesting sort of theories out there, you know, this sort of um, hangover that we have after a night out and the grumpiness that can come with yeah. that. Um probably partially due to lack of sleep but it may also partially be due to lack of that REM sleep you know less processing of the emotional experiences so it it does a lot but I want to come back to that to that caffeine and the example you just give you know people said oh I consumed you know late in the afternoon and I, I I still still fall asleep Um, if you drill down you sometimes you do find out actually sleep isn't isn't as good, but you need to ask a few, more, a few more questions. But one, for me, one important question to ask is, how do you feel when you wake up? How do you feel during the day? You know, How much caffeine do you consume? What happens is, if we don't sleep for long enough or not well enough, it, it means that the body and the brain don't restore as well as they should and could. And that, amongst other things, impacts on our cognitive performance including our situational awareness, our decision making, and sort of almost like how we perceive ourselves. And there's a beautiful study from almost 20 years ago, where they, um, I have to remember this now, they had a group of people who slept for eight hours, two weeks, they slept for eight hours, then they had a group who slept for six hours, a group who slept for four hours, yeah, and I think one group they were only two days, they didn't sleep at all. And during, these, during the study period, all of these groups um, had to say or rate subjectively their, their performance level. And they also had to do objective tests, reaction time tests, right, to assess their performance. And what you see is that with the four and six hour group, um, subjectively for the first few days, they said, oh yeah, I'm getting tired and tired, and then it plateaued out. They said, oh no, my tiredness doesn't, doesn't increase despite getting too little sleep. Objectively measured, their performance decrement just got worse and worse and worse right, over the course of, of the, of the uh, 14 days. So what that shows us is that our own ability to, um, to accurately assess the impact of sleep deprivation is hindered exactly because the brain is impacted upon it, oh, yeah, yeah. right? So anyone who tells me, you know, I drink X many cups of coffee and, you know, I drink it late in the afternoon, in the evening, and I can sleep. Of course, you know, everyone is different and la-di-da-di-da, um, but I will ask more questions because of, yeah, how lack of sleep impacts on the brain.
0: Yeah, so they almost fight their own corner, don't they? Yeah. So you, you, you've got someone who subjectively can't, you know, they, they, they perceive that they're still performing but they're actually they're not but they'll they're convinced that they are because of because of the concurrent effect that everything's yeah. had on them yeah it's it, yeah it's amazing and i i, I think i read a, a study about uh uh subjective per- perception of themselves uh again i might be, i might be mm-hmm. mixing them up here but i'm sure i read something which was similar where they deprived them of a certain amount of sleep and again it three or four groups i can't remember exactly but it was uh and this was self perception it was it was how they felt about themselves, and there was this mm-hmm. with the lack of sleep there was actually real negative connotation with how yeah. they perceived themselves and uh you know how well they felt and how how they looked and how they appeared oh. and and everything and 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 again obviously in today's society it's a massive thing to you know people's self perception and again where you know in in our industry it's very image related there's a lot of stuff there that's mm-hmm know, and psychologically can massively impact people. So, so sleep, get your sleep in. I think yeah, that's, that's I probably it. So, so obviously this is, this is your specialist area. Uh, you've, got a, you've got a fantastic book on it, which, which I have here, uh, Sleep Sense, which, which I, I'm going to give you my little review of it. It, <laughs> it. It's a very logically thought out. And again, you know, you can, I, I'll, I'll let you come back on me on this, but it, it's a very logically thought out uh, it, it's it, there's a lot of reiteration of kind of common sense practice in there. I think it's a, a fantastic book for anybody who's looking to improve their sleep. I think there's, you know, it's great that there's no, there doesn't appear to be anything in there that's kind of out there. It's all very sensible. It's all very logical. There's, there's, there's a path that kind of goes through it. I think you could probably read it out of order uh, to mm-hmm. some degree. Uh, I, I think it would always be best like any book. It's always best and start to finish but but I enjoyed it but it was a lot of reinforcement of the things that you should be doing and also just just similar to the conversation we we've, we've had is there's a lot of stuff that sort of says look, that there is a logical reason to do this because it is going to benefit you in this way and I think there's with anything like that there's got to be a bit of belief in the process and the outcome because I think there's so many subtle things that add up when we talk about sleep and when we talk about all of these these things that I think get biologically dismissed, you know, light and sleep and all these things we kind of take for granted. And I think there's so much stuff there that when stacked on top of each other, them, we get all these things kind of right or better than they were. I think they have a massive effect. So I think it's a, it's a fantastic book for, you know, anybody who wants to just understand that process and how that gets from start to finish. And obviously this is, this is what you do now you you consult with people. And and again, I'll let you expand on sort of who you deal with and the type of people you deal with, but, but you, you, you've got somnia as well. So tell me a little bit about somnia and what somnia is about and ultimately what you do.
1: Yeah. So um, thanks first of all, for the book review. It's great <laughs> And it is exactly common sense. And what I try to do there is in effect, help the reader, you know, develop a rhythm again because everything in the body is rhythmic, everything in our external world is rhythmic, seasons, daylight. Um, it's just to, to find your own rhythm and then live according to that, you know, as, as much as it is um, possible. Um, that's, that's really the aim. But yeah, coming back to Somnia, what I do, um, I work predominantly with, with, with people who struggle to sleep, either to fall asleep, or they wake up in the middle of the night, or they wake up too too early, um, and helping them getting their sleep back on track. And sure, there are things you know around the night we look at, but to come back to this, also in in the daytime, right? What's what's going on? Because you've got the entire waking day to prepare for your nighttime sleep, and that relationship between sleep um, and wake is bidirectional. What I do in every day impacts on my sleep and my sleep impacts on the day. And just to come back to the moment, what you said about, you know, sleep and sort of own self-perception and um, how I perceive myself um, and how I look. Exactly. That's, that's one of the big things for, for my clients, right? My insomnia clients is this sort of how am I during the day? Um, that's often the biggest problem. It's, you know, horrible to be awake at night, but the, biggest pain point is how they are, how they feel, how they perceive to be in, in the daytime. That's, that's I, what I would say is, is the biggest pain point for most, for most of my clients. And yeah, so what we do there is, you know, devise strategies, um, behaviors to, to help them. And a big part is awareness. If I don't know what's going on, I don't know what to change. Right. So that's what it starts. And that's why where, where for me, um, mindfulness is is an important part, not that you have to sit every day and meditate for 45 minutes uh, because, you know, for most people, that's that's not possible. But you you can bring a mindful awareness to your everyday life. And that, that's the key. And that goes back to, you know, pausing, checking in with oneself um, and then depending on what what data we get back, so to speak we then work on ways, okay, where where can we make changes?
0: Sorry, tickle again. (laughs) (laughs) I'll just make sure that I'm not going to squeak or anything as I speak. So if people want to get in touch with you, if people have problems inherently with their sleep, and obviously, you know, this is your specialist field, this is where, you know, you thrive and you do your thing. So if people want to get in touch with you, where's, where's the best port of call for them to, to find more about what you do, you know, to get in contact with you, to be able to, to, to procure mm-hmm. your services as such?
1: The best is just to go to, to my website, which is somnia.org.uk, and then just drop me an email um, and I will respond and then we'll, we'll take it from there. That's the best way.
0: Wonderful. Well, thank you for your time today. We could, I'm sure we could go down a million different rabbit holes about various bits and pieces. And there's so many topics around this subject that, that I think, you know, we might do, uh, episode two, potentially in okay. the future, if, if we can, uh, we can dig into some other things and, and maybe explore some more of the research, but thank you so much for your time. I know that your time is hugely valuable as is everybody's and thank you for your expertise. It's, it's, it's been fascinating from a personal perspective as well, to, to, to speak to someone about this particular topic is, it, is it, it's, it's, it's something where, you know, there aren't that many specialists on it and there aren't that many people who are as well-educated as yourself on it. So it's been wonderful having you on and thank you for your time once again.
1: It was an absolute pleasure um, and it is such a vast field. And um, so, yeah, I enjoyed all the different turns that we took because it's just all so relevant. Um, so, yeah, thank you for inviting me to, to yeah, for having me.
0: Thank you. Speak again soon.
1: Bye. Bye for now. If you enjoyed the podcast,
0: click subscribe and please leave a review and thank you for listening.